Hey everyone, Bree here. Just wanted to pop on before the episode begins and let you know that there is a content warning for discussion of rape and sexual assault in today's episode. So if that is something that triggers you, please skip through from 41 minutes and 20 seconds until 46 minutes and 20 seconds. We hope you enjoy today's episode. On with the show. everyone. Welcome to the Categorically Romance Podcast. I'm Bree. And I'm Aaron. And today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Val Darbashar. Hello. Thank you for inviting me along. <laughs> well, we are so excited to have you here today on the podcast. And can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, certainly. So um, as you've already said, my name is Dr. Val Darbashar. Um, so I completed my doctoral studies in um, in 18th century literature, uh, specifically covering uh, a, a romantic writer uh, called Charlotte Smith, who lived from 1749 to 1806. Uh, she was a poet. In fact, it could be argued that, you know, she repopularized the sonnet form during the 18th century with her poetry collection, Elegy, Sonnets and Other Essays. It hugely influenced writers like Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Wordsworth, but hardly anyone's ever heard of Charlotte Smith today, unfortunately. She also wrote stories for children. She wrote one play and she wrote romantic novels. Um, so they were novels of the British romanticism, but they were also love stories, really, where, you know, a heroine with a poetic name like Emmeline or Ethelinda or Celestina would have a number of adventures over the course of several volumes, you know, before achieving a happy ever after with the hero of her choice. So because I've read romances pretty much all my life, uh, what I found when I was studying for my doctorate was that these 18th century romances have got quite a lot in common with romantic fiction of today. So when I completed my studies, I turned my attention to my favourite publisher of romantic fiction, Mills and Boone Romances, and I've started to study them in earnest now. And I'm currently completing uh, the research for a book on a number of writers for Mills and Boone who wrote over, you know, several decades for the company, primarily Penny Jordan, who's my very favourite, but also Sarah Craven, Roberta Lee and Mary Birchall. So hopefully that introduces me. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Okay, so you said no one's no one really knows the name Charlotte Smith. Mm-hmm. How did you come across her? Well, I was really influenced by um, a, an academic teacher, lecturer, um, whilst I was doing my undergraduate studies at the University of Sheffield. Um, so she, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Labby, she, well, Professor Dr. Jacqueline Labby, as she is now, um, she was a huge Charlotte Smith fan. Um, and she introduced me to the po- poetry of Charlotte Smith. Uh, and I, I took a course on how uh Smith and Wordsworth sort of interacted in poetical conversations and it was just so inspiring um, and then just I, I took a break from my studies I did um, uh, I worked for a while I had two children uh, and then I came back and studied a, a master's degree and connected with uh, Professor Labby again and she acted as my supervisor uh, for my doctorate uh, with Charlotte Smith and she was hugely inspirational she I could not have done it without her so I was extremely lucky that is so amazing I love when you can kind of introduce people to those like lost voices in history where it's like you need to know about this person <laughs> absolutely that's exactly what she did yeah yeah that's really incredible the uh because when I think of old romances probably like a lot of people would first think of Jane Austen and sometimes that's just it and right <laughs> so to hear about this author that wrote these like epics almost it, it sounds like romance epics that's, that's so fascinating so Jane Austen was actually influenced by Smith's work uh, in one of the very sort of early works and in some of the juvenilia she mentions um, Charlotte Smith's first romance Emmeline the Orphan of the Castle uh, and she sort of disagrees with some parts of the storyline um, probably a little known fact is that Jane Austen's Sanditon which has recently been televised in the UK so UK listeners will be familiar with it. I don't know if they will in America uh, but um that has a scene where a carriage overturns which is directly pinched out of a charlotte smith novel oh my god (laughs) (laughs) see i've always believed i'm like i mean no shade to jane austen she's jane austen but like she had to be influenced by somebody you know (laughs) smith was a huge influence on her i think and and you can really see that in her works but i mean uh, austen herself acknowledges it in those sort of early writings yeah yeah Yeah. well we would love to know how you became a romance reader oh right oh yes well this is a story in itself really so i'll (laughs) I'll take you back in time um and i'll tell you about sort of my first encounter 
encounter with Mills and Boons and with specifically with Penny Jordan's work because she was the first author I ever read. So if you imagine it's kind of 1985, <laughs> so I'm going quite way back now. Uh, and in the, I asked my mum, I was quite young at the time, and I asked my mum a bit of a tricky question on the facts of life. And my mother, she thrust a book into my hands by way of answer, really. And it was a Mills and Boone. <laughs> and it was a Mills and Boone by my mother's favourite romance author, Penny Jordan. Um, and it was one of several offerings from Jordan from 19, from 1982. It was Escape from Desire. So this was the first book I read by Penny Jordan. And, you know, when I sort of looked at the book the first time, I really remember the cover. It had this kind of... Um, sort of a traditional cover with the white covers and the, the, the pink lines with the rose on it uh, and it had a, a hero who looked a little bit like Sean Connery on it so I sort of looked at this oh this looks quite promising really and and in it the book related the story of a heroine Tamara Forbes who was a really kind of sweet naive heroine who like most of Jordan's heroines you know really very likable indeed but I'm sort of reading this book trying to find the answer to this question which I can't remember now uh, and I, it kept struck me that Tamara she had a really big floor and that was she had terrible taste in men I think this is you know <laughs> quite surprising really considering it's a romance novel um you know because when you first meet her she's engaged this kind of uh, a chap called Malcolm who's really a stuffy country gent type he's expecting to inherit the country pile very soon from his mother and you know Malcolm doesn't really get much of an outing in the novel which is probably a good thing I've got to say um but he's he's sort of terrible really sort of um, represents everything this part about sort of British aristocracy I suppose so Tamara goes on holiday and she changes her mind about her engagement because she gets kidnapped by terrorists while she's on holiday oh my gosh I know I know <laughs> uh, it's one of, more, one of the most surprising storylines um, and she's held captive with um, uh, the hero of the tale and Sean Connery look alike, uh, Zachary Fletcher. So he's really tall, dark, and handsome as they always are. He proves himself to be resourceful, he's brave, he's passionate. There are some really dilatory terrorists in this. He even managed to sort of deflower Tamara in the jungle while simultaneously he's kind of leading the escape at the same time, you know. So he's the ultimate alpha male. But he's also a bit sort of harsh, he's really critical, he's a bit taunting, he's a bit cruel of Tamara. And, he, and yeah, I mean, he saves a life, there's no doubt about that. Uh, she gets bitten by a poisonous spider in the jungle. She's not having much luck on this holiday at all. This is not going <laughs> in Tamara's <laughs> favour. <laughs> no, no. Uh, in fact, you'd be writing strongly worded letters to your uh, travel company, I think at this point but you know she still managed to sort of fall in love with Zachary and you know I, and the sort of it comes to this ending this conclusion this happy ever after which ridiculous as it was the storyline you still completely buy into it and you know if I'm completely honest this book that my mother gave to me it raised more questions than it answered but from that <laughs> point on I was actually I was just hooked so from about 14 onwards I've been reading Jordan and whenever I get a little bit fed up whenever I feel down I will read a Jordan novel and it will pick me straight up so my interest in Jordan's work is more than academic I'll say that now okay <laughs> And that sounds so epic, but knowing it's a Mills and Boone, you know it's probably like 200 pages at the most. <laughs> Absolutely. 187 pages of nonstop action. It really was. <laughs> right through to that happy ever after at the end. Wow. Yeah. Well, from following you on Twitter, you seem like you would be a just go-to resource for anyone that's looking to learn about some history of Mills and Boone. Um, can you share with us some of the history that you've learned through your studies? Oh, yes. Yeah, I would love to. <laughs> so, I mean, Milton Boone is a company that has got a really fascinating history. It really is. In fact, there's been a whole book written on the history of Milton Boone, which is um, interesting in itself. Um, but it, it's over 100 years old. It's got a really established reputation of supplying these escapist fantasies, uh, you know, for its readership. So when times are hard, when things are bad, people read romances. It's the only book sale that will continue to rise. So, in you know, initially, they didn't just publish romances. They started by publishing authors like Jack London as well, so things like Call of the Wild and White Fang and things like that. However, in the 1930s, uh, in the era of the sort of depression when things were really quite bad, they realised that these book sales, that nobody else was sort of selling books that much because nobody had much money, but romances were still selling because people need that pick-me-up. So um, they decided to focus entirely on that genre so what the lesson from this is really is that when times are tough people need escapism and I think that's been 
proven through you know the sort of global pandemic we've just oh, lived absolutely. through that absolutely yeah. people go to romance to you know just to get get away from bad times really the 1930s when they concentrated on romance also saw that rise of cinema attendance so knowing that their audience um, you know preferred that escapism that romance in cinemas they drew the covers in uh, drew the readers in with covers that featured those male heroes a bit like you know Zachary Fletcher looking like Sean Connery in his James Bond days other examples Charlotte Lamb she uh, quite a lot on her books you'll see a kind of Johnny Mathis lookalike I've seen covers by Annie Burroughs with a Keanu Reeves lookalike on them uh, one of Jordan's one of her later novels features a Channing Tatum lookalike so you know they still use these uh, uh, techniques to draw people in uh, to buy the books and you know the publishing house itself is really it's it's a master you know stroke in marketing really it's exploited this sort of um, escapism with ruthless business acumen in order to reach the biggest possible audience so a little known fact is that when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989 uh, one of the odder gifts that uh, the, the people of East Germany received was a Mills and Boone novel which was um, given to them by, by uh, Harlequin Mills and Boone um, and it was one of Jordan's novels. It was a reason for being, uh, which they selected as the romancers best representing their company. They gave away three quarters of a million copies of this to East, uh, East Berlin, sort of East Germany, um, to introduce them to Mills and Boons and to romance. There are so many other fascinating facts about the company. I mean, Penny Jordan herself wrote for the company over a period of um, sort of four decades. And in that time, the business itself went through um, sort of various upheavals and uh, uh, takeover uh, bids. And some of that is reflected in novels as well. I think one of the most fascinating facts, the one I enjoy the most uh, from the History Archive, is that two and a half million Mills and Boone books have been used in one of the uh, in the construction of the M6 motorway in Britain, which is, will be well known to any sort of British listeners. Uh, basically, the novels were pulped at a recycling firm and they were used in the preparation of the top layer of the motorway because... Um, uh, tarmac who built the road found that the road ran smoother ran quieter with all these mills and boons underneath them so oh there's my actually God. <laughs> 45,000 books for every mile of motorway on the m6 you're driving on love absolutely yeah. it is the road to romance yeah Oh, and just Mills is... and Boone is just part of the infrastructure. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you've ever encountered the M6. It is quite a depressing motorway. So that's probably the best part about it. <laughs> we talk about covers a lot. And just to hear you speak on some of the history of the covers, it's like, wow, that really does make sense. Because once upon a time, the, the going to the theater was like brand new for people. So how would books have competed? Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And again, there's been a lot of research around that area and a whole uh, Joanna Bowring wrote a, a book about that and there was an exhibition in Britain about about the you know the art of Mills and Boons and about the amazing covers that they have so wow yeah that's yeah. An, wow. how okay can you talk a little bit if if you are you know and I just assume that you do <laughs> Harlequin when did Harlequin come into play how did that connection how did we get Harlequin over here so it's it's a Canadian company isn't it Harlequin Toronto based and I think now I'm going off memory here um but i have done some research around this and just just by reading the books really about the history i think it's around 1991 something like that that harlequin took over uh, the firm um and you know previously to that it had been a british firm where it was run by these two brothers charles and alan boone um and they basically um treated their authors like they were the daughters so they, okay. they were these kind of father figures like nursemaiding their authors through this sort of process of writing romantic novels and, you know, help, helping them to sort of supporting them. But Harlequin had a much more business focus, which is entirely right, because you want the company to survive and you want the product to survive. Because it's so important to um, to. Uh, readership um so it, there was a kind of phase going from the reading where it was a bit ruthless and they were like really getting rid of these authors who didn't sell a lot of sell a lot of you know copies so there was an author called um uh, Mary Birchall, who uh, wrote sort of before the war and during the war, um, and she was she was um, she actually used she, again she's part of the Mills and Boone history. She used the money that she got from her Mills and Boons uh, to ostensibly go on research trips to Germany during the war years, but used the money from her romances to smuggle Jewish children out of Germany, and she actually saved oh, twenty nine children's read lives. About her, yes, yes, yes wow. she's fascinating, but she yeah. was kind of still hanging on, I think, with these sort of, and I don't think they wanted this kind of old 
old fashioned mills and booms in, in, in their um, so there was the quite a sort of ruthless period where they got rid of a lot of authors and Penny Jordan was writing for the company during that period and that sort of um, period of upheaval where you'll get kind of a, a boss coming in and scrutinising the work of what people are doing actually comes up in her novels quite a lot around that time which really fascinates me uh, you know you'll have a hero who was a boss who's coming into a new company and scrutinising the work of the heroine and the heroine will prove herself and there was a whole sort of range of novels that addressed that and I can't help but think that it was related to that uh, that takeover because of the sort of changing business practices but I mean Jordan herself was a hugely successful writer uh, for Mills and Boone and still has a huge following today and st- her novels still sell I would imagine thousands of copies millions of copies so here you are like kind of sticking it to the man like talking about your work environment in your books and they it's... never really caught on to it <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing they probably didn't really catch on to it but it, it, it it's sort of definitely there I think uh, yeah I, I agree I thought it was uh, it was a yeah a clever move I want to ask this random question that's not on the list but just hearing you speak before we kind of move on harlequin mills and boone is synonymous with category romance but i mean i don't know how much that we in in north america definitely we can see what we kind of define category as changing a bit there are more like digital first companies and stuff like that i don't know if that's the same for you all over there but how would you define category romance so so for me i mean i i sort of do couch it in terms of mills and boone's categories really so you've you've got the traditional the modern the presence romance the contemporary romance which will be in recognizable modern situations um and the here but you know they're all very consistent you know hero heroine meets it's a happy ever after consistently obviously um they have the medical romances um which used to be called doctor nurse romances very politically <laughs> correctly <laughs> you know back about when it was just mills and boone and not harlequin mills and boone um and then they have these historical romances as well and um have actually tried to write a historical romance because those are the because obviously with my sort of grounded in 18th century history and literature i thought i'll have a go at this really and i did get a full manuscript request but then they didn't publish it so that was that career gone unfortunately <laughs> uh, but yes but the history I, I do really like them and they're a bit they're a bit bigger and they're a bit more um I suppose more satisfying there's more detail in them and things like that so there's those as well but then you know Milton Boone it's um it, it has adapted to the markets amazingly well I mean so for instance when you if you remember when Twilight was really popular they produced a whole series called Nocturne category mm-hmm. romances which was about vampires and werewolves and all sorts of things like that. Um, so, I mean, that's, I sort of suppose I separate them out into categories of type like that, really. I mean, we do get, I, th- I think you're right, the landscape of romance has changed, perhaps not so obviously in Britain. The Mills and Boone still dominates, I would say, the market in, in terms of probably print books, but also ebooks as well, Kindle, that kind of thing. Um, there are, you do see uh, romances which are, you know, just digitally printed. Um, I don't know how other readers perceive them, but I never quite trust them as much as Milton Boone. I think, you know, if that just been self-published. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's probably not a very good answer, really. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. So we've talked a, a lot already about Penny Jordan, and we're just mm-hmm. so excited to hear you talk more about her. So you recently tweeted that you've read 136 of the 187 novels that she's written. We know now that this kind of goes back to your teenage years. So that may be weird, but like for the project that you're working on, which we hope you'll share with us a little bit more about that. Why did you pick her specifically to kind of read through? So, uh, so I haven't read them all as yet, as you've said, and I am working my way through them. Um, and hopefully, I hope, I hope one day to achieve that 187. I'm on about 140 now. Um, but I specifically picked Jordan because I just, I love her work so very much. She really is my favourite author. I mean, when I first started on this research journey, I was really fortunate to meet one of her former editors. And she just told me what a fantastic writer Jordan was in terms of the range of the stories she came up with, how very prolific she was in her work. You know, if you think about 1982, she published 11 novels in a year it's nearly a 
book, a book a month. It's amazing. And how her stories appeal to sort of readers from across all sectors of the community, all sectors of society, all ages, really. I mean, I think she, she was just, I mean, her editor said of her, she was loved for her distinctive voice um, and that her success was in part because she continually evolved her writing to keep up with readers' t- changing taste. So that was sort of from a quote from her, her last novel, A Secret Disgrace. I suppose I chose her work really because she does this by sort of set, accessing these contemporary trends and the fashions and anxieties, you know, through a use of popular women's magazines for her research because she's keeping a finger on the pulse of what was current and fashionable in society. So if you look at that over three decades or, you know, four decades of writing, a novel's really chart social change from the perspective of, you know, just an ordinary woman writing for ordinary women readers. Jordan herself was actually, um, I mentioned to you, I come from Manchester originally. Um, she, she lived quite close to me um, in geographically um, and was from my area. So I suppose I can relate to her stories as well. She quite often writes about towns and villages I know because of the where, where I grew up, where I grew up rather. Uh, but I, I mean, I just love the way she captures this social history in her novels. And it's, it's I mean, Queenie Levis said that, you know, social um, popular fiction is a, is a good way and sometimes the only way of accessing some aspects of social history. And I think Jordan does that so well. I mean, if you think about, she wrote a book in 1992, Law of Attraction, where uh, the heroine's rival, Patricia, comes in wearing a um, heavy scent of uh, poison, which was really popular in the 90s. Um <laughs> We've got 1985's Desire for Revenge. Um, So in that, the heroine, she willingly dons this 80s fashion faux pas, a casual lemon flying suit post-shower. You know, she's capturing all those sort of terrible fashions that that I grew up with in the 80s. Um, She makes uh, reference to sort of popular advertising uh, on television. Um, But I I think one of the most important things she does, though, is she sort of captures um, a lot of, the economic and social um, financial landscape um, for a readership. So from, and and quite, her writing is actually quite obsessive about sort of recessions and financial crises. And that'll be quite often the driving force between behind why the hero, why the heroine, you know, needs to hook up with the hero in the first place. Either she'll need a job or he'll offer some money to do something, you know, and right. um, and she'll need it because of these financial crises. And she wrote about the recessions of the 80s, the 90s, uh, the financial crisis from 2008 onwards, you know. And so her heroines, they've had to cope with like negative equity, you know, the credit crunch, rising unemployment, low interest rates on saving accounts, along with the rest of us, really. So that's really kind of what I, I, I like about it, Um and it's so important, you know, for uh, from a research point of view, the, the fact that she's capturing this social history um, and, and sort of explaining it, exploring it, charting it from um, the point of view of her readers. So if I think about, there's a novel uh, from 2009. So this is just after the credit crunch, uh, The Wealthy Greek's Contract Wife, yeah? Um, and in that, the heroine, Lizzie, is like struggling to cope in the economic downturn like the rest of us. She was a previously successful small business owner with a, an interior design company because of the credit crunch. Contracts have dried up, the house is about to be repossessed, and she's struggling to put food on the table. And, you know, what happens in the novel is that Jordan's writing about a situation that was familiar to a lot of women and why a lot of women were reading these romances to kind of escape from these sort of ills, really. So, you know, Lizzie's there. She's the victim of low interest rate on savings accounts, the economic downturn. Um, Her clients aren't paying her anymore. So one of her clients offers her a share in a Greek apartment block instead of a cash payment. And she decides, oh, well, it's better than nothing. And she accepts. However, it turns out to be fraudulent. So she finds herself face to face with Greek billionaire, Ilios, and he's telling her she owes him a lot of money. And it's money she hasn't got so she's only got just under 50 euros in her purse and nowhere to stay and she thinks how am I going to pay him so it's Mills and Boone obviously so it's no real surprise <laughs> when Ilios decides upon meeting Lizzie that what he really needs is actually a wife of course, <laughs> of course. Of course yeah, that's going to solve all his problems and, and that actually she'll do um, so he says he'll pay her £100,000 to pretend to be his wife until he's sort of concocted some dodgy dealings of his own and then she can go away again and it just is again. It's one of the, another one of these really bizarre solutions that you completely buy into because you're reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of really shows how Jordan sort of twisted those contemporary current events and turned them to the advantage of a sort of formulaic romance. You know, gained inspiration from the common woes of her readers and re- reached out to them and engaged with them on you know 
common ground, really. And she's also offering that escapism for financial woes. I mean, there could must be a lot of people who thought, oh, why won't someone offer me a hundred thousand pounds? You know, to be their yeah, fake marriage. I do it <laughs> precisely. Yes. So you know, she sort of really does sort of capture that. She also, I think, this is really interesting in her work. Is she? Um, she she manages because she's writing across such a long period of time over the eighties, the nineties, the two thousands, and into the two thousand and tens. She starts to sort of predict these recession happenings. So, in nineteen eighty, she wrote one of the larger books, which was for it was for um, the Mirror, which is an imprint of Mills and Boone, um, stronger than yearning. It was called. In that one, the heroine applies for a loan, and the bank gives it to her, even though they realise she's not probably not going to be able to pay it back. The manager says to her, from the bank's point of view, it's good business because the money's out on loan to you, an extremely profitable rate of interest to us, and it's well secured by the deeds on your London apartment. So my concern isn't for the bank's money, but your ability to repay it. And this kind of irresponsible is responsible lending, you know, by banks actually led to the credit crunch. So in a way, like it's, you know, Jordan's predicting these things happening. And I just think that she must have just studied it so much that she could just kind of see, you know, we all know recessions go in cycles. So she could probably sort of predict how things were going to go. It's very, uh, really intelligent work. Yeah, what what fascinates me just from hearing you speak about her is that there's a lot at work here in these short novels. I mean, it sounds like she's really capturing a moment. It's not necessarily, you know, princess or really well-to-do women like it's any girl can see themselves in that position but then like one thing that I've learned from you know Aaron and I've learned from reading presents modern is like they it does have that fairy tale fantasy like it is the romance fantasy and so like what would you want during like a financial hard time you want like somebody just come in and whisk away those problems and it sounds like she gave the readers that escape through the through the books yeah, that's absolutely right. Yes. So the Ilios, you know, he, he, he's not set up as the traditional prince, but he is the prince, isn't he? Saving the day there, providing that that happy ever after and that escape from from financial woes. You're so, so right with that. I, I have a just interesting question off the top of my head with the whole uh, COVID and everything that's happened so recently and that a lot of people are still in the midst of. The romance readership, and I think the writership too, has kind of stayed away from that subject matter yet. Like it's too close at hand but do you think that penny jordan would have like would she have would she have dove into that and and really written i I don't know some kind of roommates of convenience to write out lockdown with or something like that what are your personal feelings (laughs) on that you know i've thought about this Aaron, quite a lot it's um because it's hard to predict what she would have done and and if there might have been a policy you know saying telling them to stay away from it because it was you know it was a terrible time for an awful lot of people um you know globally it's been it's been dreadful hasn't it I would imagine though and if I had to guess I would say that she would do it she would be doing right in these lockdown romances and, and you know engaging with the um not pretending it's not there you know not pretending it's not happening <laughs> but actually engaging with the material and turning it into a positive and there's no doubts you know for some people the pandemic has thrown up positives new ways of working you know reprioritizing what's important to them in terms of home work-life balance um so you know, every cloud is a silver lining, I suppose, really. It has been a dreadful time and it's been, you know, a time of great tragedy for an awful lot of people. But I, I do think she would engage with it. And I wonder if it will come in the future. I wonder if, you know, a, a yeah. few years down the line, we'll start to see those lockdown romances and then there'll be a whole new study we can do. So. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Well, I love that you asked that, Erin, because like I was, I don't know if this is over where you are, but here we have this app called Clubhouse and it's just, there's a lot of like author chats and stuff like that. And I was listening to one back in the fall and the conversation was, should romance writers be capturing the pandemic life we're living in? And just hearing you speak about Penny Jordan really kind of mirrors my response to them. I was like, hey, when you read some romances, you are transported to a specific time. Like some authors really capture a moment. And I get it. Some some readers don't want to read that. But for like historian purposes, 10, 20 years from now, you know, they're going to kind of look back on romance now and be like, wow, nobody really captured this moment that like everyone was living in for years. So it, it's nice to know that once upon a time, there were Penny Jordans who were like, oh, I'm calling all of it out. <laughs> <laughs> 
yes yeah I think I think you're right I mean because that that Queenie Levis quote I mean I've used that an awful lot in my research where you know that uh, popular fiction is a good way and sometimes the only way to capture social history in some ways these romance novels if they are written about covid and about lockdown situations are going to be the only way to capture that you know that inside view of what's going on in people's homes because we didn't know what was going on we could only live our own lockdown experience couldn't we we weren't allowed to go out and ask about anybody else's do you feel like presents modern today which i mean is a favorite of ours but it definitely is like very fairy tale escape yeah Do you feel like right now, especially with what we're living through, it's more emphasis on the fairy tale escape? Or do you feel like there are some Penny Jordans sneaking stuff into their books? That's a difficult question for me because uh, I've been reading in a number of authors, but I haven't read many, very many, you know, ones who are writing today, unfortunately. I've read Penny Jordan. Sarah Craven is an author I, I studied because of her interest in the Gothic and the way that sort of creeps I into her work. I have one by her. I think it's called like The Witching Hour or something. Oh, yes, I'm like, is this I've a got princess? that one too. Yes, yes, it's a good one. Um, and Roberta Lee, I really like her work as well because that was kind of, um, I don't know, if, are you familiar with the work of Roberta Lee? Have you ever heard of her? Or? No. no. Well, no. she basically... I'm not surprised, really, because she basically, she was writing in the sort of late 50s, um, early 60s, and they were, they were very much, became a bit kind of kitchen sink romance. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a bit sort of, sort of, the heroines were off quite often working class and, you know, they'd go home and have a cup of tea with their mum. And it, yeah, I can imagine it being uniquely British and probably not that romantic. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, that sort of phase um but it is really interesting from a social history capturing point of view, but it's probably not that interesting for readers of romance as such. Um, so I don't actually, the only authors I've read, so I've, I've been really fortunate to meet Susan Stevens. She came on a, a panel I was on uh, and she'd met Penny Jordan and been mentored by Penny Jordan. So I guess that she was probably quite influenced by her and I really like her work. I really like her her romances. I'm not quite sure if she still writes for Mills and Boons, but she's still writing. And that's uh, some of the other ones I've read some of the, because you do see these changes don't you of like that some of them are a bit more kind of rom-com a bit chiclet really and I it's not for me that so yeah so not so I can't really answer that question very well unfortunately because I've, I've read historical authors too much I think yeah <laughs> you seem to be Dr. Val a woman that appreciates women that are no longer with us <laughs> yeah possibly yes yeah well going back to your research did you read Penny's books in order uh, I imagine since since this is going since childhood, it wasn't always in order. But for the purposes of this project you're doing, um, did you do a no, reading well, in order? And how did you access the titles? Yeah, well, yeah. So so I haven't read them in order until very recently. So um, I just kind of read the ones I have because some of them are actually quite hard to get. Um, so some of them have been re-released on Kindle. Um, and that that's great because, you know, they're cheap, they're easy to get and you can read them. They're not in the original. I'd, I've got a real weakness for the classic novel with the you know the movie star heroes on so if I can oh, yeah. I try and buy them in in the uh, physical copy but I mean some of these I, mean, I don't know if any of your listeners have got sort of classic Mills and Boone at home they're worth a lot of money <laughs> so you know hold on to them guys hold, yeah, on, hold to on to them, them. <laughs> exactly I mean there's one uh, called Giselle's Choice which is um I think it's it, it's a reprint from 2013 so after she died it's very expensive and, and some of the Mary Birchall ones now you know you're talking 50 pounds for a for a you know what was what was a paperback that was worth 25 pence in the day so um so it's you know they all you know hang on to them exactly yeah do be aware of how much they're worth so but what I've done is I've started to read them in chronological uh order now uh because I'm kind of systematically trying to collect the ones that I haven't read so I'm trying to make sure I didn't I don't miss any um and actually I think I have discovered more by reading them in order um rather than just reading them randomly so for Mm -hmm. example I found that uh when, I, when I've read them in order, I found that some of the sort of subsidiary characters that Jordan wrote about in her early novels then have a romance created for them themselves. So she uses these sort of uh, as the main character after that. So they get you get a kind of relationship between the earlier novels there. There's a sort of a, a provenance in the way the he- heroines have developed because you've seen them as a subsidiary character in one book and then they put, turn up as the main heroine in another.
Edinburgh. And, you know, oh, she did this. It. It's amazing, isn't it? So she did this in her later career as well. So Lizzie from The uh, the Wealthy Greeks Contract Wife, she's actually got two sisters who appear in later novels. Um, and she did this, uh, the same with, um, there's a trilogy called Wedding Nights, which is really, uh, it's one of my favourites. And it's a trio of books which tell the story of three different heroines, Claire, Poppy and Star. And basically, uh, you first see them, they're at a wedding and Claire catches the bouquet. So she's going to get married next. And it tells, you know, according to sort of folklore, and it tells the story of Claire's romance at that point. And then she gets married. At the end of the book, she throws her bouquet and Poppy catches it. <laughs> so you can see where this is going. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and, and the Poppy story, I've got to say, is my favourite. The, the, Claire, Claire's one, you didn't like it so much, but the Poppy one, oh, it's really, it's really good. It's, um, so Poppy's this really young 22-year-old heroine. She's a bit immature in her attitude and she's been in love. She was in love with Claire's groom, basically. Uh, oh, no, she was, yeah. sorry, no, I've got that wrong groom from the original wedding who was a cousin Chris and she's been in love with him forever uh, and in the background there's always been Chris's brooding and slightly forbidding older brother <laughs> James so um, as a child she'd actually preferred James you know he was the one who taught her to ride a bike fly her first kite the one who'd mopped up her tears when she'd fallen off her first bike you know <laughs> and that sort of thing um, so she then sort of ends up in a relationship uh, with, with James which emerges from a, a room misbooking at a conference so inevitably she ends up sharing a room with him inevitably he ends up walking into the shower room and catching up in flagrante inevitably oh, no. she ends up in bed with him <laughs> and even more inevitably <laughs> she ends up pregnant and then being forced to marry him because and of course <laughs> absolutely all that's missing is twins really i don't think she actually has twins that's something but <laughs> so, and i just i love the books there was so much going on there was all the office space stuff so this is one of these novels i think which kind of responds to the harlequin argument about he's coming as the managing director of the chairman and he, he's involved in everything he's going to make a clean sweep of everything if her poppy she'll, she'll be able to prove her worth to him you know and um I, I, I don't know about you guys but i spent sort of my early career working in offices and so it's quite nice to know that sort of office or sort of gossip that is in this book and all that sort of uh, that sort of atmosphere of it comes through so well in this book it really does it was really uh, nostalgic for me to, to read this one uh, when the office there's the office account there's a scene where the office accountant finds out that poppy's been sharing a room with a boss at the conference and the first thing he does is goes and spreads it around the typing pool <laughs> so, oh yeah <laughs> so it did my heart good to sort of read that and the office gossip is as bad everywhere <laughs> so everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> so, i really love that, that 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 sort of aspect to it and she does improve as a character as she goes through she sort of grows up a lot she realizes she's falling in love with james she's having his baby so you know she has to kind of grow up and she becomes the heroine that jordan is really good at is the heroine that grows and develops and becomes the woman she should be and that is what this um this uh, romance uh, sort of conveys so well so yeah I do that so I think reading them in order there are definitely benefits to doing that so to kind of piggyback off of Aaron's question what do you do you think it's in I feel like there's a there's different camps of readers right there's readers who pick up a book for fun which is great I think we all pick up a book initially for fun but then there's also readers that I don't want to say like read critically to like rip it apart but you are paying attention to things you're paying attention to the tropes and when do they initiate the first kiss and how is the sex on the page depicted like you're looking at those things just a lot differently than just reading the book for fun so when you take an author and you say I'm going to you know read through I read through their bibliography and you have a project like this is it are there ever novels or in general where you're reading for fun like are, can you take the critical hat off sometimes or was it always like you know horse yeah. horse trainers on stay focused this is for something in the end it, I think it's hard to take off the sort of critical eye once, once you sort of know how to read a novel with a literary um, sort of analysis eye and any book it doesn't matter what, what book it is I mean you could take um, uh, you know a children's book or anything really you know really simple and read it with a critical eye um and but i have an immense amount of enjoyment in what i do and i love these novels i just absolutely love them so i whenever i start one i will feel that sort of surge of pleasure of yeah. reading it and then I, and actually i think i get more pleasure from the from what emerges out of it from finding those you know from realizing that she's doing sort of clever things and so um if i uh sorry i'm just going to find some notes that i wrote um just about one of the literary devices that she uses really well so 
she obviously the kind of simple stories and you think oh these stories I've heard them all before or whatever there's a Russian formalist critic called Viktor Shklovsky and he coined the term uh, defamiliarization it's one of my favorite literary theories basically he used this term to describe the capacity of art to invest the familiar with strangeness and thereby enhance perception so what he argued was a text shouldn't be easy a text should be hard and it's you should stop and appreciate it and you know it's not just about perception though it's about that literariness so he argues that authors who stop the reader in the tracks and do something called bearing the device in literature what they're doing is they're exposing literature's artificiality and the defamiliarizing the tropes and rendering it into true art so and Jordan does this repeatedly in her work and once you know it's there you can't stop seeing it so in 1985 she wrote a novel called Permission to Love uh, and in it the heroine asks him if he's in love with her and he mocks her really cruelly and he accuses her of having a romantic little mind and taunting her with the ever thought of taking up fiction writing for a, for a living and no, it sort of pulls you up and think well hang on a minute I'm reading romantic fiction here and, it's still, <laughs> and this, it, it, she does it constantly through our words so one of my favourites The Forbidden Loving oh this is a great one I love this one so um, basically uh, it concerns the romantic relationship between um, this is another strange one a homeless university professor and one of his students parents so the heroine in this novel she cautions herself to concentrate on reality as uh, her romantic daydreams had always featured men who'd never been real and they'd merely been vague fictional characters and then it suddenly occurs to the reader just like the ones you're reading about just now like the one you're reading <laughs> exactly <laughs> and it's just it's so clever what she does and so, um, so whenever I see that it just it enhances pleasure for me I think and I think uh, maybe that's just me <laughs> but, uh, but no, knowing that um, I mean there's been I mean I suppose there's a lot of negative press isn't there about Mills and Boons like you know some critics will say oh, it's a waste of time to read them or there's no point reading them or there's nothing literary about them actually there's quite a lot that's literary about them and if you read them you know with a keen eye you can get so much out of them so exactly yeah it's easy to say something like that if you haven't actually read the book I do you find know. that the people who most sort of, I was interviewed on uh, BBC um, uh, World at One and, and I was interviewed by this kind of sort of elderly guy who clearly never read a Mills and Boone in his life and, you know, they levied those criticisms and you do think, you know, how can you know if you've never read one? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like Penny Jordan was a woman ahead of her time. <laughs> Well, she, she definitely was. I mean, and I can sort of give examples of this, really, in terms of, you know, you mentioned the sort of sexual content in Mills and Boons um, and, you know, the love scenes. And I think Jordan's novels present a really interesting interpretation of that, of those that, again, feeds into social history and into issues that we are still experiencing today, you know, with the Me Too movement and uh, the way that um, violence against women and girls is, you know, the way that it's handled by the police still. She, she was writing and addressing that in the 1980s and 1990s. Really, so I mean, you'll be familiar with an author, uh, Violet Winspear, for Mills and Boone, and she kind of infamously said that a Mills and Boone hero had to be capable of rape. I mean, and obviously she received lots of criticism for that statement. Now, Jordan's novels in the 1980s are almost obsessed with rape and sexual assault. Um, you know, and uh, there's one novel where the hero actually does assault a heroine, so that, you know, and then pays a very high price for it. So, and then there's uh, uh, there are other ones where, you know, um, she, she, she brings out all the arguments about victim blaming tactics, you know, and all those sorts of things that are familiar to women everywhere, really. So there's one novel, 1985 again, I've got to see I've done a lot on the 1980s, but this, this period really interests me from a sort of rape sort of sexual assault sort of type uh, point of view so the novel's time fuse and it's got a really sort of complicated storyline where um selena is the illegitimate daughter of a well-to-do qc she's the heroine but the qc doesn't know she exists because she's been um uh, adopted out and raised in foster care and she's really got she's got ambitions of her own to qualify as a barrister but she can't afford it and in 1985 it just wasn't something that happened for children in care however right or wrong that is i think children in care still struggle to engage with you know um professional careers higher education mm-hmm. certainly in the uk so she gets a job as a secretary and she's working for a father because she wants to get to know him however on the scene is his nephew the privileged and obnoxious pierce who's um you know all selena really wants to do is get to know her father but pierce is the childhood that uh, selena has been denied but he's suspicious of her from the very beginning and tries to make trouble from her from the outset and at the beginning he's really not very likable 
person at all. He's the hero is, you know, you can't see it. It's again, you're thinking, oh, Selena's got bad taste in men here. <laughs> so, but you know, there's a bit more to this novel than your usual romance. You know, it's interesting that the one legal case Selena watches Pierce work is a, a is um, barrister for defence, but is rape one. So this is fragile looking 15 year old girl with a swollen belly, alleging rape against a family friend of her parents. And Pierce admits, uh, you know, he really decimates her in the courtroom using that girl's history of sexual activity as his defence, labouring her as promiscuous, and, you know, when the accused gets away with it. And it, this is actually what happened in the 1980s in Britain. That's how rape cases were handled. Um, and that's why so many women were reluctant to take their cases to court in the first place. And of course, Selena's really angry about this, and she demands to know why he did this. Now, he's got a terrible excuse. It doesn't even stand up the excuse. And it really raises questions about the hero's morals, about society's morals, because just a few pages later in the text, we see Piers attempting to force himself upon Selena. And there's this, this quote where she says she didn't want to. She wanted to resist the force of his contemptuous anger, but his strength was greater. And, you know, he threatens her and his little regard for what she's feeling. You get this sense that Piers actually isn't any better than the rapist he was defending. And I couldn't help but wonder if Jordan had done that on purpose, because, you know, this darkly forbidden hero is... It's just a one step away from a perpetrator of violent crime. And it's a really fine line that this book's treading between what's acceptable and what's not, really. But it makes for such an interesting read. And if you go back over the sort of history of the way, you know, children were raised in care, um, about sort of how rape treat, treat cases have been handled, round about this time in Britain, um, there was a, a, a programme on television which attracted one of the biggest viewing figures ever. And it was a 90-minute double feature programme about rape and it consisted of two interlaced parts, television play entitled The Act of Rape, which was written by famous novelist and playwriter uh, Faye Weldon, and there was a panel discussion afterwards about it. Now, Weldon's play was based on actual court cases, and in it, you know, women, two versions of events where women were blamed for the crimes that, you know, for being... Uh, for being raped in the first place, um, the the police acted insensitively. The victim doesn't want to be medically examined because she's just been through a huge trauma. But then she, you know, her body is evidence. So what can she do? She won't have a dog's chance if it gets to curl unless they, she lets them do this kind of really sort of awful examination of her body. Um, you know, and she's this rough treatment. The woman's heard crying out in pain in this uh, TV, and it sort of really aired this this debate that was going ar- around, and which is still continues today about how rape cases are treated and how, you know, women become a body of evidence themselves. They're blamed for the cases, blamed for the crimes, you know. And I'd all, Jordan really highlights this in her work, you know, in, in an early novel. And I just can't help but think that she's done this deliberately to sort of air these views, that this kind of social history, get it out there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and now we have her books all these years later to kind of look back on and reflect on. And one, you can see, OK, times haven't changed that much. But if you're looking at a specific time, Penny Jordan put it all out there in she these tiny did. Mills and Boone novels. Well, you can see why she might need 187 of them to kind of cover all these issues, really. But (laughs) yes, she did. She did. You shared with us some other names of authors that I'm assuming were writing around the same time, like Sarah Craven, Violet Winsphere. Are there any other favorites? Any of anyone else's bibliography that you're possibly interested in kind of reading through? So I'm um, on the Penny Jordan chapter, which is kind of the first sort of major chapter I'm going to write up. But I am in I'm going to be looking at Sarah Craven uh, just because she she was writing slightly earlier than Penny Jordan, but she she sort of wove all these kind of gothic tropes into her work. So I think. As an 18th century literature, you know, analyst, you know, having that sort of historical background, I think I'll be able to read them really well. I think it'll lend themselves to that kind of historical reading. So she's sort of next on my list. I, I adore Roberta Lee. I mean, her works are, they are strange. They are a bit, um, uh, as I say, they, they sort of present this kind of very, uh, perhaps not, you know, when Britain was pretty bleak, really, in the 70s, you know, when we were, when we were, when we were living through power cuts and things like that. And, you know, people had, didn't have much money. And so I really do like her work for the way she captures that. And again, you know, like transforms it into, into the romance. She was actually a, a writer for children's television as well. And um, she, 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 I mean, she's interested from that point of view. She created some puppet TV series uh, one is called Sarah and Hopperty. 
and it's one of those things where you sort of look at it and think that's the stuff will give you nightmares really <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's worth googling just to sort of have a quick look at it but that she, that was Roberta Lee who created that who wrote I think she didn't write as many novels about uh, sort of in the 80s for, for uh, Mills and Boone I'm really interested in Mary Birchall just because of um, what she was writing about and what she was using the money for and the yeah. sort of, um, the sort oh, of wartime yeah. references really those are the kind of authors I'd like to focus on I, I quite like Violet Winsburn I understand that the archive there's an archive at the University of Reading um, about Mills and Boons and about the history and I understand that they've got a lot of Violet Winsburn stuff so it's almost worth sort of thinking well I might try and get her in just for an excuse to go to the archive <laughs> 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 well now it feels like you know people fight you you kind of fall in love with the line or the series specifically yeah do you think back during this time it was more about the author than say presents modern itself i think from from what i've seen on twitter so i mean i'll quite often i will read a book and i'll tweet the storyline in a few in a, in a bit of a thread if, it, if it's a good one you know if it's one that i've really enjoyed and, and people will quite often respond to me and say i love penny jordan i've read every one of her works I've, i remember reading this one you know and they'll engage me like that so i think it is about the authors really uh, jordan herself i mean she was right a reader of mills and boons before which obviously you, you'd have to be before you wrote for them and she said that she always used to go out and buy any novels about the sheiks so any sort of these <laughs> desert based romances so uh, which again do quite interesting things so um, so yeah yes I think that's uh, I think they do follow the authors yeah well it's so fun to know that she read them as well because just hearing you talk about all the things that she throws into her books like Aaron and I were always laughing about is this too much for presents no <laughs> it sounds like Penny Jordan was like we're, this is presents we're just throwing it all in there <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> so if you had to if we asked you okay what would your penny jordan starter pack consist of what oh. titles would be in it oh gosh that's a that's a good question yeah because i mean out of the 140 i've read i think about now there are so many amazing novels there are some that have clearly been written in an off moment as well which you would expect for someone who's been so prolific if i had to pin it down to a top five i would definitely say start with the first one falcon's prey from 1981 because it's got all the elements which will make you know jordan that tremendously successful author for them and more you know as a as a, a first novel when i read it sort of knowing it was a first novel I suppose it struck me it's a really carefully written novel it's got lots of polish it's lots of research in there it's a chic romance the ones she liked uh, and you know this it's got this sort of essential parts for all a really a really good romance so in uh, I think a real strength in that one is the portrayal of a heroine Felicia who is touchingly vulnerable and innocent she's really relatable you can sort of read her and see yourself in these shoes in her shoes and she's really endearingly swayed by the prospect of romance in the desert so so in that one, she meets and falls in love with a, a, a rich Kuwaiti uh, Faisal. Now, but Faisal needs his even richer uncle's approval um, before they can marry. So uh, he sends her off on her own, mind, to try and win the approval of Rashid, who's the falcon of the title. And it's not long before Felicia realises that Faisal is regardless a bit feckless by the family. He's actually off jollying it up in New York by this time and he's forgotten about her. And, uh, <laughs> and poor old Felicia realises that she's at the mercy of a man who's approval. She's She's never going to earn. And, and worse, she can't actually afford the plain fare home, you know. So the strong research in it, it sort of means that the desert scenes are really rich. They're really evocative. You can sort of see she's read all these scenes before in previous novels. Um, and, you know, and she's come from a poor background um, with a, a, an uncle who's a bit distant. And, you know, what's been a really kind of loveless childhood growing up in bleak North Yorkshire. And, and she soon falls under the spell of Rashid's loving family and that sort of warm embrace of, um, you know, the, the family that, that really stays together and and she decides she doesn't want to leave them because well, she says she convinces herself she can't afford to but actually she wants to stay she wants to stay in those wide open spaces of the desert she wants to stay on that dark blue velvet sky you know studded with scar stars <laughs> there's a really sort of funny line where she says felicity gave a faint sigh uncle george had never even approved of picnics <laughs> so it's, uh, so it's 
uh, you sort of get that sort of contrast between that bleak North Yorkshire upbringing and, and this sort of desert romance. It's brilliant. I would re- definitely recommend that. Definitely 1982's Escape from Desire, just because it was the first sort of one I I read um, and I love it so much, really. I mentioned the spider in that, the, so the heroine gets bitten by a poisonous spider and I just take this opportunity to say that the spider, as a means of uniting the hero and heroine, it pops up a disproportionate number of times in Jordan's work. So you get sort of tomorrow's first unlucky encounter on holiday with a poisonous one. But in 1986, in Loving, um, the hero Jay gets to, you know, save Claire from a large spider in the bath. In the her omnibus Pride from 2011, Alessandro also, you know, saves her from a spider in the bath. So it's a, she's clearly got a thing about spiders. She's got a thing with spiders. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> And uh, I would say definitely as well, um, 1985's Exorcism. That is another really weird one. Um, but it, it's the only romance I've ever read where there is a giant octopus in it. So definitely worth reading for that alone. Oh, oh my gosh, Penny <laughs> Jordan. <laughs> yes, yeah. And then I suppose I really like, uh, I suppose the one I've read sort of repeatedly, read, read over and over again, and if I'm feeling fed up, I'll go back to it. And um, there's one called The Power of Vasily, which was published towards the end of her life in 2011. And, you know, as, as plot goes, it's pretty standard Fair, really. We've got Laura, who's the heroine, and she needs a job after being encouraged to leave her old one, you know, if she went quietly. And her unscrupulous ex-boss has told her that he'll keep the fact that she's been effectively sacked, he'll keep it quiet if she goes to that fight. However, it turns out you can't trust anyone uh, because her new employer, Vasily, who's uh, the, the Russian employer of the title, he finds out pretty easily uh, why she's left her old post. And then she sort of, you sort of throw in the fact, you know, Vasily's really sexy. He's got this, this, the covers features, this sort of Channing Tatum lookalike. He's really brooding. She was, she actually met him before and she's nursed a bit of a schoolgirl crush on him. And there's some really steamy romance that, you know, goes on. And really well-developed characters. She always does a good heroine. And Laura's, like, fantastic. She's an independent thinker. She's smart, but she's kind of vulnerable enough to make the same mistakes we'd all make. So she's quite uh, likeable. It kind of uh, is vastly that's a surprise, really, because we kind of really get inside his skin and, and see that inner conflict of his feelings uh, for Laura, really. So it's quite nice. There's, um, there is an argument from a, a critic, Amira Jarmakhani. She wrote an essay called The Sheik Who Loved Me, Romancing the War on Terror. And she argues in that that uh, romantic literary quite often tries to unite nations with troubled pasts via the nationality of the hero and the heroine, showing that, you know, love always finds a way, as, as um, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin writes. Um, so, you know, and during 2011, you know, after obviously relations with Russia are very strained at the moment, <laughs> but <laughs> they were very strained um, between Britain and Russia um, after the Cold War. But during 2011, that was the kind of stage where Britain was trying to move forward and improve those relationships. And Jordan reflects that in this this hero, this complicated Russian hero who falls in love with this English girl and unite the nations through it. So that's what I love about that one. And then I would definitely say as well, finally, uh, A Secret Disgrace was a last novel which was published posthumously. And it just shows that at the end of her life, she was right. You know, she was dying from cancer at the time. She was still producing work of just the most amazing quality. So That's beautiful. Yeah, that is. That's amazing. This has been so incredible. Erin, do you have anything else? Uh, I just want to say that uh, I I had an idea while while uh, you were speaking. And I would love to get you and Steve Amidow in a podcast together and just be a fly on the wall and listen to you two to talk <laughs> about the history of Mills and Boone and just category romance. In general, you're writing something. Are you able to talk a little bit about it, or is it top secret? No, it's it's not top secret at all. It's um uh, so I'm yeah I'm I'm writing um it's a research monograph essentially. So it's an academic textbook um on Mills and Boons on so on Penny Jordan and on her works, uh, covering quite a lot of the things I've spoke about today. Um you know the sort of the social history that's captured in her works, the way she reflects women, so the feminism that's coming through, um things like how households are organised so I don't know if you're familiar with an, uh, there's a, a research study by Kate Mann called Entitled where you'll find that um, in, in uh, British households that you, quite often women will do the, the the work of the household and men will they'll have a job possibly but then they'll come home and relax whereas women have got another job to do uh, and Penny Jordan reflects that in a novel so we're talking about that as well but also I'm going to talk about Roberta Lee talk about Sarah Craven and I'm my final chapter I'm a bit 
Jory's out because I know so much about Jordan and I love her work so much. I think it would stand two chapters, but I don't know whether to go to a different author. So I'm still sort of thinking about that. Alongside that, I'm also de- developing a bit more of a public engagement um, project, really, something that's a bit more, because obviously um, academic textbooks don't have a huge readership. I think my my first book sold 32 copies. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, it's not reaching that many people. So I wanted my work to reach more people, but I haven't really done any kind of exploration. But I have been writing a reader's guide to Penny Jordan, which contains a synopsis of every single one of her books, the things I've loved about them, the, the, the literary things that pop up in them that are interesting so things of note and I've been writing that alongside it so but I don't have a publisher for that so I don't know if HarperCollins would be interested but I'm hoping that I'm going to go to them first. (laughs) If anyone in HarperCollins is in any of our (laughs) listeners knitting circles tell them to not sleep on this okay (laughs) (laughs) we will read it Dr. Val Derbyshire just saying (laughs) we cannot wait And I just, I mean, can I just thank you for keeping these voice, these women's voices from once upon a time alive and reminding people of how important they are. And I think one of the things that we enjoy about category and getting to, you know, the opportunity to chat with these authors and just to read the books is they put so much work into these novels that honestly take like two or three hours to read. Absolutely. You know, and just hearing you talk about Penny Jordan, it's like, not only was she writing, she was keeping in touch with what was going on around her to incorporate that. And like you said, here we are now, all these years later, we can look back and you are kind of transported to this time that not wasn't necessarily, you know, a time that everybody got to experience. So just thank you for doing that. Cause I, I think stuff like that's really important. Frank, thank you yes. for allowing me to talk about it at length. <laughs> you can come back and talk at length about whatever you want. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> oh, thank you. Very kind of you. So tell everybody where they can keep up with you online. So uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, I've got a, I've got a hangover Twitter handle from when I was younger. So it's at Valster11. So at capital V A L S T E R 11. So they can follow me there. Um, I work for the University of Derby um, as a researcher. So um, quite a lot of my uh, work is linked to the university. Uh, so you know, if they follow in the University of Derby on Twitter, uh, they might see. Um, uh, might see sort of uh, developments there from myself and from, from other researchers as well across you know a whole range of uh, um, exciting uh, areas so <laughs> not just romance <laughs> I was wondering I was like how does she do all this research and mom at the same time I don't know <laughs> well, my, my boys are they're quite grown up now they're, they're both taller than me now so I've, it's, it's not as hard as it used okay. to be <laughs> okay. <laughs> well thank you so much this has truly been an honor please come back I mean, we're rooting for your books, write them, get them put out there, come back and talk about whatever you want. But we're just so grateful that you were here today. This was amazing. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a a huge pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Well, for our listeners, make sure you check the show notes. We'll have the links to where you can keep up with Dr. Val Darbyshire. Keep up with her, guys, and we're going to persuade her to come back. We'll figure out something. (laughs) So (laughs) make sure you check the show notes. Keep up with her on Twitter, and we will chat with you in our next episode. Have a lovely day, everybody. Thank you for listening.